What would compel someone to be actively involved in the New Zealand Society of Authors for over half a century? And what stories and secrets might they accumulate throughout that time? I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast, where we dive deep into the archives to hear New Zealand authors tell their story of living as a writer in Aotearoa. Dame Christine Colcatley was a journalist, publisher, teacher and author who was involved in Penn New Zealand from the 1950s. Known for her commitment to writing and publishing in New Zealand, she was also deeply committed to other writers, teaching and encouraging them and working to set up systems and organisations which protected writers' rights, freedoms and incomes. Dame Christine died in 2011 and is still missed by many. In November 1999, she spoke with Alison Gray about Penn and why, at first, she declined to be a member. I I thought it was such an honour to be a member of PEN that when I was nominated, had to be nominated and seconded, I declined because I decided that I wasn't really quite worthy of inclusion as a member as yet, because I was really just basically a a journalist. When was this, Chris? When when, when did you...? Oh, Lordy, when would that have been? Late 40s, certainly my early 50s. I'd really like to know, and you don't yet, do you, when PEN began in New Zealand? You don't as yet? Mm. Well, let me see. I came up from Canterbury University in 1946 to work on the Labour Daily, the Southern Cross. I'd had the wonderful Winston Rhodes as my uh, MA English tutor at Canterbury, and it was Winston who introduced me to the short stories of Frank Sardison through Tomorrow, things of that sort. Uh, I worked on the press part-time, Alan Kernow was there as a cable sub-editor, as they called them in those days. I had lived for a time with Margaret Jepson, that wonderful woman from the English Jepson writing family. Her brother Selwyn Jepson was a well-known novelist of his time. Margaret had written under the name of Margaret Jepson, although she was married to Frank Birkinshaw, later divorced him. Margaret had written the novel Via Panama, and it was a, a writing atmosphere. There were many other writers too, poets. Dennis Glover, I knew down there, dear Dennis, just back from the, from the wars. And I cannot actually, though, remember any talk mm. of a writer's organisation. I don't think it was till I was in Wellington. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, Margaret Birkinshaw had two young daughters. I had my daughter, Sarah, at that stage, and I lived with her. And her young daughters called Jane and Faye, and I was very fond of them, but lost touch when they went back to England. My own daughter, Sarah Nice, years to come, started giving each other books, because we liked them, by the writer called Faye Weldon, the very same one. Nice, fat face, of course, we've kept in touch. But there was a great deal of talk oh. of writing, of novels, of poetry, but I do not recall oh. any mention of P.E.N. at that stage. Then in Wellington, I met and married John Rhys Cole, who had come down to um, join the country library service to go to library school here. He 
He really was a protege of um, Frank Sanderson's, one of the the North Shore crowd. And I had met one or two of them and knew of the writing of others. Rex Fairburn, of course, actually Frank himself, well, so many people of that era. But my first real memory of PEN comes in the early 50s when Monty Holcroft was then editor of The Listener and who became a close friend. I ended up publishing Mont and his autobiography that's skipping many years ahead. Uh, when Monty was elected president of PEN and John, John Rhys Cole, was the secretary. Now because we lived in Upper Willis Street, 299 Willis Street, next door to Ian Cross by the yeah. way, <laughs> Jimmy Baxter calling in, <laughs> Tony Vott, Lou Johnson. Uh, because we lived there, it was a convenient place to hold meetings of PEN, so a lot of um, committee meetings, or even just meetings between Monty and uh, John, were held there or else at the listener building. But I used to be the unpaid, no doubt unacknowledged, uh, assistant secretary, because in those days, and what a change, and I wonder when this happened, um, PEN was centred in Wellington. That's where everything was done, no doubt to the resentment of the outlying areas. Do you know yourself, Ali, when well, things changed? I when they did, yeah. No, we couldn't, but it was certainly in the after the 70s, so we were way, way ahead. As long as that, I think good so. Lord. Mm. Yes, it could well be, because I can remember helping organise a conference in um, Canterbury. Now, when would that be? Possibly in the 60s. We, John and I and our three children, went to Indonesia 1956-58. Fairly soon after we got back, I think John resumed being secretary again of PN, not quite sure. Certainly we were involved in planning a really for those days, for any day, damn it, most exciting PEN conference when nobody did what they were expected to do, as far as I can remember. <laughs> I remember dear Eric McCormick, who was such a darling in every way, talking about something marvellous, but it wasn't what he was expected to talk about. <laughs> Dennis, of course, disrupting in his inimitable way. That was most exciting. And that brought together writers from all around New Zealand, not just Wellington, but in our own personal lives, and again I'm wondering how much talk about PN, if anything, went on there. We saw a great deal of Lou and Pat Johnson, mm -hmm. as it was then, the Baxters, Jackie and Jim, Tony and Anton and, and mm -hmm. Roz, Vaught. Not so much of the Campbells, they lived a, a good way out. Those, those were our main mm -hmm. friends. We, mm -hmm. we used to have regular parties and Jimmy declaiming. I was just remembering, though, Jimmy with his marvellous poetry, but he was the most clumsy dancer, as though he had no physical rhythm in him. I can remember dancing with Jim. It must have been a gorgeous Wellington night, summer night. I can still smell the crushed grass because we're outside on the lawn, all of us and drinking beer. That's what we normally drink and a wind-up gramophone playing the Tennessee Waltz. <laughs> <laughs> so Jim's heavy feet coming on mine and the smell of crushed grass and daisies. Mm, good days. But as for um, talk of PEN in those days, I really can't remember. What about Monty Holcroft? I'll just backtrack a bit. I became immensely fond of Monty 
He was always Mr. Holcroft when I first wrote for him. Of course, we were very respectful. But I got to know him when I was helping John through uh, through PEN. And we're skipping a bit here, yeah. aren't we? But this is now, what, 1962, oh, okay. when John rees had the first of his two dreadful accidents and damaged the left side of his head, his temple, and it did alter his personality just so much. And for all sorts of stubborn, ridiculous reasons, I felt that I really couldn't talk to people about this at that stage, except Monty, because mm -hmm. he then ceased being Mr. Holcroft, and he was Monty and I was Chris. He was so understanding. He had the greatest affection for and respect for John. I think that's why I was able to mm -hmm. to talk to him, and yet he could see in a way that others really couldn't what extraordinary changes were occurring in in John. So Monty and I really became very close, and dear Lorna, whom he mm. married his second, third wife, I think Lorna was. And then two years later, in 64, John had an even worse accident when he jumped on our daughter Sarah's scooter she used to go to university and had never been on it before, he didn't put on a helmet, and he wavered and fell off in front of a bus, which, which stopped the bus, didn't hit him, but he damaged his right temple. And after that, it was inevitable he would have to leave Turnbull Library, where he was chief librarian, and give up, really, new thoughts of writing, though he always persisted, poor devil. And Monty became very close. Okay, so um, <laughs> Monty, who was well, distinctly of the old school, when I think of P.E. and that E for essayist, I think Monty really is the only true essayist I may ever have known. I know mm. other people write essays and landfall, but Monty wrote mm. Essays. At the same time, although he was so correct, so punctilious, he dearly loved, who doesn't, a good literary gossip. <laughs> it was always lovely to get together with Mont and exchange these things. And he had a marvellous story about Jimmy Baxter, barefoot, that smelly, long, terrible, bought from an op shop or army circus, <laughs> I suppose, greasy overcoat he wore lurching up to the officers, greeting Mont <laughs> briefly, then curling up and going to sleep in a corner. And Mont is sort of delicately stepping over the poet's legs and <laughs> trying to stop anyone else from coming into the office because I think it just wasn't terribly decorous to have that sort of thing going on <laughs> in the in the listener office. Monty um, and Frank Sargison, the two two men of whom I was deeply fond, and both of whom, of course, I greatly respected, alas, through long series of happenings, which I won't go into here, really did not get on and were suspicious of each other. I would think, much though I loved him, that the wrong interpretation came from Frank, who was very, very prickly. And uh, On the other hand, Monty, the short man, <laughs> always trying to be a little larger perhaps than he was in physical size, his problems, problems there. He did a, an amazing amount to foster New Zealand writing mm. in mm. every way. In fact, I would say, oh, I don't know, how could you compare Monty and Charles Brash, some wonderful things that Charles did, but, but Monty did give more people a possible platform and an actual platform into so many New Zealand homes, I wished Monty had, in the two volumes of autobiography I published of him, wish he'd 
of his, I wish I'd talked, he'd talked about those more, but he kept saying, oh, I wrote that in my book, he especially wrote about his life, The Listener, but that didn't reach very many people, it's something that I want to mm. research myself, and when I come to write my autobiography, just to try to put it all, or some of it, on record, so that he gets his, his due. Marvellous guy. Now, Monty, probably because of his life in the public service, once he became editor of The Listener, um, had to become far more meticulous. Some people like Jimmy Baxter and Lou mm. Johnson, and they weren't meticulous, who cares? But Monty saw there was a right way of doing mm. things, mm. and this was PN's way, and everyone should have their due, and let us consider that, and this is democratic, and he did, of course, more than anyone, I would say, to put um, PEN in the position where it is today when it evolved into Society of Authors. What were the issues that he that were mainly concerned with in his early 50s? Well, I think that there was only A.H. and A.W. Reed publishing then. When did Paul's book Arcade, or oh, how exciting that was, mm. come on the scene later, later? Uh, but mm -hmm. Reeds were the ones, and Reeds were paternalistic, mm -hmm. good people, fair. I think that they paid their uh, writers their their ten percent. I doubt if they ever got up to twelve and a half or whatever. There were no such things as agents. I don't know that writers ever thought of uh, trying to negotiate better contracts. But point I'm trying to make is that when writers were concerned about money and payments, it was really as freelance writers right. for magazines or um, right. newspaper feature articles. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. yes. Yeah. So that's what would be discussed. I know that Monty did his very best to pay all writers, poets, as much as he possibly could with the listener, which was great because that did establish a precedent. Yes. And of course he published them. Yeah. Uh, I'm quite sure that there were all manner of issues which, uh, as soon as I saw the minute book, I'd think, aha, yes, and I possibly could come up with some revealing, I would hope, anecdotes. But politically, and all this would be in the 50s, before John Rees-Cole and I moved out to above uh, Karaka Bay from Willis Street, because there were so many meetings in our living room, and probably it would be from 58, 59, after we'd come back from Indonesia. Politically, the big push was to get the right sort of arts foundation created to help writers. Right. And out of all this talk came the QE2, the Queen Elizabeth II Arts Council. We had the most wonderful Secretary of Internal Affairs in those days, God, when you think of it now, um, Joe Heenan. And it was Joe who had arranged for a small pension for Frank Sargison, for instance, who right. perceived and honoured writers. I think perhaps I should go back a little further. Mm. When people like Eric McCormick and um, John Pascoe, for instance, uh, were working on those magnificent centennial publications for 1940, all, all mm. set up by Joe Heenan, well, in 1940, I was still at secondary school, but looking back, that's how it, it began. I, I think these people getting together realised that New Zealand simply must have some appropriate for New Zealand body which could foster the arts, and more particularly writers. And they used to be long and boozy and argumentative and smoke-filled, because we all smoked in those days, um, discussions in our living room at 299 Willis Street. 
when more particularly people such as Ted Fairway, who was, I think, Assistant uh, Secretary of Internal Affairs, if he wasn't, he was highly yeah. placed. Uh, Andrew, what was his name, that lovely, Andrew Sharp, mm -hmm. the historian. John Pascoe, the mountaineer, mm -hmm. and good photographer, but he too was a public servant. And of course, John, John Rees-Cole, who, who took mm -hmm. the lead and uh, well, they all did in working towards what did become QE2 yeah. and now has devolved, if that is the word, into Creative New Zealand. Mm. So that's where our um, political interests were right. focused. Mm. At the end of the 50s, yes. Yeah. And, very and, and into the 60s. Yes. Oh yes, this carried on. I'm not sure now what date uh, QE2 uh, was set up. That, but that is important mm. to any consideration of PEN's mm. history. That and the fact that really I think there was only AH and AW Reed. And now with the proliferation of publishers, I began publishing Cape Catley in 1973, very largely because I was outraged uh, by the manuscripts which H and A.W. Reed were turning down, bless their cotton-picking hearts. They had brought me in, I'm a wall, had to be a freelance editor and I was asked to assess manuscripts and so on. But they were so narrow, so cautious, so conservative. And I thought, this is no good. And I suddenly thought I was digging a drain down here when we were <laughs> getting ready to build the house. I thought it'd be fun to be a publisher. Little did I know. Well, it has been fun. It's been all sorts of things. The point I'm making here is that was 1973 mm. when I published the first book. And now I really am perhaps about the oldest established oh. publishing house, except for the you know the branches or the random houses and, and so on and penguins from overseas. But I don't think that they had been established in those days. I'm not sure I'd like to look up the, the dates. Mm. Certainly there were not many. So it was altogether a different scene. But in the 70s, 80s and 90s, with the proliferation of publishing houses, naturally, uh, PN is, no, it's no longer PN, <laughs> Society of Authors, is uh, very concerned with all manner of legal and mm. political matters, quite mm. so. Mm. And what about the Authors Fund? When was that? Um, I know Ian Cross was really involved in that. Yes, he was indeed. Now, I'm afraid that wasn't... Well, I don't think that was a New Zealand idea. It was a very good imported one. Yes. Uh, excellent. Taken very seriously. I just don't know the, the dates there. No, Naturally, every, every writer concerned was uh, extremely for it and did what they could. No, I have no particular input in that. that. I can't even remember what um, what, what date I, I joined um, P.E.N. I really can't. P.E.N., when it began, was very exclusive, and I thought rightly so, even though I and our friends in this particular group, you know, John mm -hmm. and Baxter's and Campbell's and Vott's and Johnson's, used to laugh, perhaps rather unkindly, at what we considered the old fogies, the, the Alan Mulgans, the Pat Lawlers, bless their cotton-picking socks. But they were writing in such a dated, old-fashioned, bowing at the knees to Mother England way that uh, it was very hard to take them seriously. But I think we were all, or most of us anyway, were sensible enough to realise, well, they at least had battled and fought and begun and written something, even though so many of their pages were full of tuis and cabbage trees dragged in just for the hell of it. Not the hell of it, they would never do that. 
instead of saying this is New Zealand, it has trees. Yeah, I can remember too, Nell Scanlon, what a lovely old battler she was. Dennis Glover was very fond of Nell, she had a great beat nose. She was primarily a journalist. She wrote the novels my mother and mm -hmm. her generation like. Mm -hmm. uh, Pen Carrow was, mm -hmm. the, was the main one. And um, Eileen Duggan, who mm -hmm. wrote indeed some very good poems. I can remember when I was about 12, emoting like hell on the <laughs> village hall in Hunterville, one of Eileen Duggan's <laughs> poems. When I sail out beyond Pen Carrow, never to return again. I can still hear that quaver of never to. <laughs> <laughs> well, her Pen Carrow was a bit different from Nell Scanlon's. But um, Nell, uh, who incidentally, partly at least, grew up here mm. in Picton where her father was a, a policeman. I think she came from a rather tough background and Nell had learnt the, the value of um, getting some help and arguing with editors over better rights, uh, rates of pay. And were there feuds and things? Bound to be feuds, jealousies. Were there camps? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think, except for the old and the new, it's funny now at my mm -hmm. age to think we were the young, yeah, the yeah. young Turks, the new ones indeed we, we were. That would be the main divide, it was a big divide too, because People like Laurel and Morgan used to look at us in bewilderment. You know, what did all these young writers and poets, what were they on about? Did they belong to PEN? Oh, oh yes. yes. Oh, they came yes. to meetings? And... Yes, to begin with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would like to go over the minutes. What yeah. about the lit, um, issues about the Lit Fund turning into the Arts Council, Tertzing How It Created New Zealand? Mm. How did, that, did you feel about that? <laughs> As I had no faith in the government was making the change and most of the people who were appointed I was not very happy about that at all. I think it's, it is not well run at present. It will be very interesting to see if, with, by the grace of God, Helen Clark gets in and becomes Minister for the Arts. There must be a big shake up there. It's in the early days. It's so politically correct. Yes. It's, yeah, 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 yeah. PEN had representatives. Oh, they? indeed, yes. And, uh, it, you know, it was considered rightly a real honour to be appointed to that. And I think people, PEN members, took their jobs very seriously. I remember Carl Stead working away, Michael King himself, uh, all manner of people. And you asked about feuds, oddly. Not a feud at all. <laughs> now I'm beginning to think of parties, but what came into my head was nothing to do with a feud. was two most beautiful young people being married. Fleur Adcock mm -hmm. and Alistair Campbell. They were both young, they were so handsome. And they, to me, they were, they were younger than me, quite a bit younger than John Rhys Cole and Tony Vott because they were older than me again. But it, they, I think, perhaps epitomised the new young poets coming on. They were shining, wonderful people, and shining, wonderful poets they have been yes. and remain. But I can't actually remember that politics came into that in any particular way. We used to have tremendous parties now. That's, that's something we did indeed. I remember at a party at our place out at Napier Street, above Cracker Bay, where... Fleur, who by then had parted from Alistair some time back, because this would have been 1960, I suppose, or 61, she met Barry Crump for the first time. God save us, of course. She married him, not for long. No. She did. Yeah. Yes. 
So what's sort the of sense of um, a small group of you being very full of camaraderie? And oh, I think so. I think there were, I, I don't actually think that there were the feuds no. in those days yes. that there mm. are now. Mm. Uh, I've mentioned, alas, the big difference between uh, Frank Sanderson and Monty Holcroft. Mm. Um, no, I can't off the top of my head think of any others. It was more a feeling of we against them. Mm. 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 Which is, yes, which is good. Which probably bloody insufferable, but <laughs> we just <laughs> kept it to ourselves. It, it was an exciting time. There were people in that group who see a very considerable talent. Tragedies mm. overcame. Oh, John O'Shea and Call Me, John with Pacific Films, was also one of that crowd having mm. parties. I was thinking the other day that of all the people I have mentioned to you, John and Cormie were the only two not to be divorced. Oh! Yeah. Baxter's, Campbell's, Watts, even Cole's, because in the end I had to divorce my dear John Miscoll. Not that that made any difference mm. the way we carried on, but yeah, it was a time of great hope and, and, and yet see the, the sorrow that came into it. Some of those people remarried very happily, of course. So you're involved in each other's personal lives as well as... Oh, I think so. Yes, 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 yes. They used to stay with us a lot, naturally, because there we were in, uh, in Willis Street. And, and people came to Wellington for meetings. And yes, they did. Eric McCormick always used to stay with us. We were very fond of him. He had been most interesting to see the part he played in early PEN days. Uh, a generous man, very, you see, in trying to help fellow mm. writers. Mm. Into my mind comes a picture of Bernard Brown today, the same kind of generosity helping Bernard, mm. of course, helps particularly with legal matters. Mm. Mm -hmm. So now, what about the London flat? Were you ever around here? <laughs> I was down here in Watamonga Bay in <laughs> beautiful Queen Charlotte South, and I used to read my eyes and listen to my eyes that pop open. Oh dear, 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 that was a bloody shame what happened then. It could just have been wonderful. I would, will read with great interest because I must have forgotten quite a lot that went on. Your account of this when you uh, do come to do it. As my, my memory is that really Carl and uh, what's his name, the minister who's the, who's the story, Michael Bassett, yeah, they stupidly got together and uh, didn't consult other people. It was a fait accompli and hackles rose, didn't it at all. But of course it could have been just wonderful people. I feel more and more that a place where people can go and write, just to get away, it doesn't have to be for, for a long time. We're just in the middle of, just this week, we'll have to look at 33 applications for the Sargeson Fellowship. And that is a awful decision to have to make. Well, obviously a number of 33 mm. you can just put aside at once, bless their hearts, but mm. in that number, I haven't even received my package yet, there are bound to be a number of writers of all ages and stages who dearly, dearly could do with some time away and a bit of money to enable them to leave their home responsibilities, whatever. I, the fellowship is for nine months, you see. Well, we did have to argue a bit within Sargison Trust to get it shared after a while because it was just impossible to ignore <laughs> so many of the applicants. Mm, mm. And some of the 
trustees with the very best of motives said, no, no, it should be the full nine months to enable you to work on a novel. The more I think about it, the more I talk to people, such as Jack Lazen, mm. who've just had three months, mm. the more I'm convinced that a short period right away can just act as a marvelous lever, get all the juices flowing, get things mm. underway. I'm Karen Hay and this is the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. We'll be back to the podcast in a moment, but just to remind you that through advocacy, professional development programs, information, competitions, awards and mentorships, advisory and consultancy services, the NZSA is the professional organisation for New Zealand writers to receive fair reward and the right to protect their copyright. As a representative body, the NZSA lobbies for the rights of all writers in New Zealand. Visit authors.org.nz to find out more about membership. Along with being a writer, Dame Christine Cole-Catley was a publisher, setting up Cape Catley Books in 1973 and publishing more than 100 books. Alison Gray asked for her unique insight into publishers' commitment in New Zealand as we were about to enter into the new millennium. Ah, publishers' commitment to New Zealand writing, that is a question. Look at that ferry that's coming in. It looks quite calm now in spite of the weather. Good. Um, well, rightly or wrongly, and quite probably it's wrongly, I myself have just published material set in, in New Zealand. I think that's because I began thinking of such a desperate need for, for this, to read our own stories. I can remember when I was a kid, when I played in the bush, I was Deerfoot the Indian. You know, I'd never read any stories mm. about Māori. Mm. There were no Māori in our particular country, district for that matter. And I remember my great excitement when I read Six Little New Zealanders. Mm, I'd read Seven Little Australians, of course, which was absolutely exciting. And then my aunts gave me Catherine Mansfield's stories. And uh, I was excited reading um, Noel Scanlon, my mother's book. And then, did he call himself... John Brodie, I think he did. He he wrote about New Plymouth. Um, he called it Paradise Bay because in those days you did not dare give the real name of a town. Ludicrous that may seem, Paradise Bay. But that was really tremendous that New Zealand people and places could figure in a real book published by a real publisher. And so, you know, quite early on, I suppose, I was shaped by this feeling of real possibility that maybe one day I'd be able to do something in this world, helping writing myself. It is a great regret of mine that I have not somehow set aside more time to write books. I've just written mm. two and edited anthologies and so on. And uh, partly it is my old feeling of do I write well enough, you see, which I know damn well and I tell all my writers' workshops and flicks everyone. I always mm. remembered Janet Frame saying to me with passion, if only I could write better. Mm. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and that's what I'm hoping, perhaps, 
a room of my own. Yeah, I intend yes. having a place when I move to Devonport, which is just for my personal writing. I'll have another bigger study to carry on with my part of publishing. But I think we all need that, a room of one's own. Hmm. What about other publishers, which are now largely connected internationally, aren't they? Do we yes. still need a pen or an NZSA to deal with them? Oh, I think so. Mm -hmm. I do indeed. Some of the bigger overseas connected publishers have excellent people working in them. Uh, Penguin, Random House, and now they have Godwit. I like very much to look at the smaller ones such as Longacre, Tandem. Bob Ross has been especially helpful uh, to me. The university ones, well, they vary. I, I can never quite quite understand what their publishing philosophies are. Mm. Victoria has done magnificently, mm. I think. Mm. That's really, I should, perhaps I should retract that. Mm. And Bridget Williams, yes, mm. how well mm. she has, she mm. has done. Um, well, I think all these people I have mentioned really do aim for excellence. Mm -hmm. God knows I do, do myself. Now, how do you define excellence? Well, one response to it excellence of any kind, of course. I even like watching a marvellous try in rugby. That's about <laughs> all I like watching rugby. Excellent. But uh, to me, it is, it is something, of course, which gives us more insights about ourselves in our own country, how we relate to it, to one another. It, it is why I personally, in, in my publishing, have, have looked to New Zealand material, because I get all sorts of things mm. sent to me, by the way, from overseas. One of the great dangers now is having your computer just jammed up with whole manuscripts oh. sent by email. My God, you have to learn to use the delete button. Oh, indeed, yes. Very, very rapidly. Uh, I've done a great deal more than anyone else, I think, naturally, because mm. I began it, I've been doing it since 1968 more experience of running writers' workshops. And I like that very much indeed. It is a rare thing, of course, to find in any workshop uh, somebody with real talent, which can be developed. But one does. Mm -hmm. There's one remarkable Wellington writers' workshop, which still meets, we still get together. Um, it's been going on for some years. And I personally, have published four books from that same workshop mm. and have another two in, in prospect and I think and hope that uh, University Press is going to do another. But that is, that is rare. Mostly you think, well, dear people, may you mm. have learnt enough so that you can write down for family, friends, for your local library, whatever, for private publication. I try to tell people now how to go about publishing their own books and issue of a hundred or, or mm. whatever. Otherwise, of course, these stories are lost forever. Mm. It's great to see these things being written and recorded and considered. Would that be something that um, the early P and, you know, like in the sectors would have supported or would have they seen, were they still quite exclusive? You think now oh, that's much I think more they're exclusive. now, isn't it? Oh, yes. As far as I can see, anyone can apply and it's just uh, accepted, are they not, to join the uh, Society of Authors? I don't think there's the business of assessment or, God save us, you might be blackballed. Certainly, to begin with, it was, it was uh, and I went quite along with that. I thought it was right that PN should be exclusive. You really had to have a significant body 
uh, of published work and the fact that I'd had millions of words published even in the Listener and School Journal that you still had to have a book or right. books you see right. and I thought that was that was quite right and proper I don't know you don't know no, no. Um, yes now how can I put this occasionally when I go to society of authors meetings it's very occasional because of where I live I find myself regretting that there are not more of the writers and poets whom I really respect and admire there. It seems to me to be composed far more of perhaps the, I won't say hobbyists, but um, not writers whom I, I would you know, seriously consider and want to read and reread. Now, fine, I think there should certainly be an organisation for everyone who is writing professionally, whether it's for or, or, or part-time. Uh, I think, and I see this when I go to Auckland too, that these writers who were well, the kind of writer, for instance, whom we must and would seriously consider for a Frank Sanderson fellowship, mm -hmm. and a lot mm -hmm. of them, by the way, are our trustees on, on, on the trust, uh, serious writers of quality fiction or non-fiction, um, we tend to meet privately at parties rather than at no, meetings of the Society of Authors. Right. And I rather get the impression that this is happening in other parts of New Zealand. Does that matter? I don't know at all. But when any um, important issues for writers come up, I would like to think that all writers come along mm. and really consider them. But you see, it is now quite hard, I think, to get people to be president mm. or secretary. When it began, it was a tremendous honour. Mm. Now it's a job. Oh, yes. And the issues they cover now, they're things like, um, yeah, still terms of payment, aren't they, and issues relating to income. Uh, the few and bad union. publishers, who there's been one or two yeah. who've published from post office boxes, to help me God, from places like Whangamata, and have <laughs> yeah. gone off without paying royalties, yes. Yeah. That sort of sleaziness. Does it, do you think PN was part of an international community in your time? Did you feel that? Yes, I think this, this certainly was the feeling of links, particularly with English writers, as, as I look back. Uh, very few of us had the money, the ability mm. to, to travel. I'm thinking now of the mm. 50s in particular, mm. or even the 60s. The scene has just changed enormously, mm. of course. And mostly there were men. Oh, that's mm. interesting. Yeah. See, what women have I mentioned? Well, there was Naya Marsh and uh, Fleur in Christchurch. Oh, well, Fleur was very young. Mm. Uh, yes, mm. I, mean, I was thinking the old guard, there would be no scanlon. Um, Naya Marsh, Catherine Mansfield, of course, was dead. I can't think mm. of it. I'm sure there are others. I must it's have very been. interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. So that's a big change, isn't oh, it? Oh, very big. Yesterday morning, I went with a friend from NOW, the National Organisation mm. for Women. We were the last branch in Marlborough, 
uh, we've just wound up, though we still meet for lunches. Why were we the last branch? Because Mom was so conservative. <laughs> we had to. So anyway, we had quite a bit of money, well, for us, and we divided it among Marlborough Girls College and the girls of Queen Charlotte College. So I had to explain to the mm. boys we cared for them too, but you know, girls still needed a little bit of extra. This was to help in cases where they yeah. couldn't go on. They needed a bit of cash. It will be sensitively administered. But both uh, Ailsa Litchfield, the other woman, and I just spoke a little bit about the changes in our lives, how very, and I'm quite a lot older mm. than Ailsa. I spoke about the big national development conference in Wellington in 1968. Mm -hmm. The principal of Wellington Polytechnic, where I was teaching journalism, Basil Potter, said to me, Chris, we've been asked to send a representative, it's you. But I just thought, looking at all these kids sitting cross-legged in the gymnasium, boys and girls, how things have changed. Because of more than 200 delegates and only three of us were women, 1968. Mm. One was Sonia Davies. I can't remember who the other yes. one was. It's not long ago at all. 20 years. Mm. 30, 30 years. years. Yes. 31 years. Amazing. Yes. So enormous changes in a very, very short time. Mm. I wonder, I mean, this is mere speculation on my part, whether that's got something to do with the change in the broadening of NZSA and the way New Zealand Society of Authors and the way it's seen is not so... Is it something to do with the feminisation of them? Mm, it's a very interesting <laughs> question, that. I'm quite sure a number of male writers think, oh, it's now run by a bunch of women, quite sure. Do you think it still has the same political clout that it had? Was it seen as a kind of important body in your days? Yes, seen more by writers perhaps <laughs> than by politicians. <laughs> but just see what Ian Cross and the PN executive of the day managed to get through. But of course the time was right, you see, that was with the Kirk government. Mm. It's yet another reason why I have such hopes for getting Labour in. Because Helen Clark will, I think, take over the portfolio of the yeah, arts. She said so. Yeah. Has she actually said so? Oh, great, 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 great. And that could mean an enormous blossoming of things for all sorts of artists in New Zealand. I hope. As for particular anecdotes, I'm sure that if I could see the, the minutes before you finally read this up, I would, the early ones I'm talking about, I would um, remember quite a lot. Quite often people used to drink so much beer, it was nearly always beer, that they'd just spend the night in our house at 299 Willis Street. And I think we ran out of sleeping bags and, and people just huddled together, whatever. <laughs> they were good meetings. Jim Baxter was a, a potent force, you see, what a remarkable fellow. Lou, Lou Johnson, always so generous, didn't they? They like supporting the magazines, because Landford Oh, yes, and yes. Arena, yes, and the Smee magazine. Mm. <coughs> That's something we hadn't talked about. They were immensely important yeah. at that time, immensely. And you see, here's Stephen Stratford's quote-unquote, had to go by the wayside. It's a book? mean, materialistic world we're moving into. Of course we all subscribe to those small magazines. Partly, though, I think, because they were so relevant to us, Charles, Charles Brash had such high standards and whatever, Lou Johnson's own magazine later. I think the feeling is a bit now that at least some of them are overly academic, 
little too precious. Did they get grants from anywhere? Oh yes, yes. from uh, Creative New Zealand. Or so how can they manage? It would have been um, the Lit Fund then. Yes, oh yes, from the Lit Fund, exactly. Uh, the Literary Fund was enormously highly valued. Oh, and of course you know about all the feuds that went on there, again between Rex Fairburn and Frank Sardison and their cohorts. Um, Rick's maintaining that you compromised yourself fatally if you took money from the government. Fiddle, we would say. <laughs> I, can, I can remember quoting um, George Bernard Shaw's play Major Barbara. If you remember that play, she's a Salvation Army lassie. And where does the money come from but a maker of munitions? It was money, and the use she was going to put to it was a good use. <laughs> it was not tainted money, it was used. Used well. Used well, yes. That was, that was quite a big argument was at it? that time. So, well, that's a useful point, because I think now there's a clamour for more grants, isn't there, and for more um, mm. aid, and it is a philosophical mm. issue. I must say that the grants from uh, Lit Fund, or Creative... New Zealand to publishers have made it possible, absolutely made it possible, mm. to publish poetry, uh, some children's books and some novels which otherwise would not have been published. I'm deeply grateful as a publisher and even more so as a reader, you see, and oh, I hope right. as a writer, yes. And that would have been something argued for and supported by Penn? Oh yes, mm. absolutely, and by Penn's representatives on the they don't bodies. have pen representatives now on. No, I gather not. I see. In in a way, I'm not mm. such a good person to ask oh, about all this, Ali, because I am a bit out of touch. Wait till I get back in Auckland, I'll get politicised again. It's a bit difficult looking out here when all you can see is water and sky and bush and not another house to imagine yourself back in <laughs> where all this arguing and politicising is going on. Mm. But also, you know, I mean, they did all happen in your house in Willow Street. Oh, yes, yes. But that was some time ago. Well, that's what I'm going to be Yes. Now we have lots of meetings in Frank Sargison's house mm. and social meetings too, which is just great because uh, life in that house goes on. I would say that probably more arguing about the matters you have asked me went on in Frank's house. 14 Esmond Road than in any other place in oh. New Zealand because Frank had a deep commitment to helping other writers, which is why, of course, there's a fellowship in his name. Mm. There's been big generosity on the part of authors, hasn't there, and writers? And oh, yes. Oh, yes. The helping hand. Mm. We never heard of the word mentor, but no doubt, uh, to some extent, anyway, that's what it was. You've been listening to a November 1999 interview with Dame Christine Cole-Catley and Alison Gray on the New Zealand Society of Authors Oral History Podcast. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to like and subscribe or leave a review. It helps others find the NZSA. This podcast was produced by Elizabeth Kirkby MacLeod for the New Zealand Society of Authors with funding from Creative New Zealand. Notturno by Ottorino Respighi, which you are listening to now, is performed by Justin Bird. The audio was digitised and provided by the Alexander Turnbull Library. I'm Karen Hay and this was a New Zealand Society of Authors oral history podcast. <laughs>